You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, I have a special guest with us. His name is Reed West, based in Nashville. He's rocking his Nashville uh, soccer t-shirt. Go, go. Uh, is it the sounds? What, what are they called? Nashville Soccer Club, man. Nashville Soccer Club. Can't get any easier. Um, Reed is a great mentor and coach and friend for me. I've learned a lot in the past uh, decade or so since we've known each other about sales, leadership, and ultimately it was a call with you that led me to real estate way back in 2016. Part of my story is I was going to get a decent-sized commission check, and I was looking for places to put that, and I'm so thankful that we had that conversation because you were the first one to say you should look at investing in real estate and the national market's really hopping right now. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. So thank you for that. Um, But your story is also super unique because you don't do real estate full time. You still have your W2. And I think probably, in fact, maybe 20% of your income is coming from real estate. So you're a fantastic resource for our listeners to learn to that are in their W2 today and trying to invest in real estate and figure out what their next steps are. So read. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for setting us up. It's gonna be good. Yeah. Well, we always like to start with the hard questions here, and the okay. first hard question is, what's your favorite ice cream? Chocolate. Why chocolate? It's always been my go-to, man. I try to go different directions. You know, I, I went through like a salted caramel phase for a little while and a cookies and cream phase. It always comes back to chocolate. You know, so yeah. just stick with what you know, I think. Sometimes in life, you get off the best track and have to come back to it. Always. Yeah, just stick uh, with what you know, man. There you go. So tell us your scoop. What do you do today? Yeah, so I, I, I work in technology sales. I've done this, man, for 16 years now, something close to that. And so full time, um, you know, I, I sell widgets inside of the data center. And so um, that's what I kind of what I've known. I've always worked in and around sales. You know, I started selling something when I was like a teenager and I've always sold something. But uh, I've leaned towards the technology market since 2004. Yeah, I think uh, some of your stories about when you were in West Virginia going through door to door sales are probably where you learned a lot of your sales chops and Reed, you're one of the best salespeople I know, so uh, that definitely yeah. is a good, ex- humbling experience to learn skills from. Insane. Yeah, there's, I've had a lot of jobs uh, selling something, and uh, fortunately, it's, it's stabilized with the technology. But yeah, from you know, telemarketing sales to going door-to-door and selling stuff and selling knives, uh, that's kind of been my MO since like 96, so... Nice. Nice. Well, tell us, where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So my mom was a real estate agent um, since the eighties, you know? So, um, you know, she started doing that shortly after my parents got divorced. She was like a social worker and quickly figured out single income. She probably needed to do something else besides social work. And so she started selling real estate and probably like, 86, 88, something like that in Nashville. And she specialized in um, larger, uh, what she would call horse properties. So she was doing all the stuff in Leapers Fork before Leapers Fork was a cool place to live. And 
and, and Franklin and Brentwood before Cool Springs was even there. So a single mom drags her kid to the listing appointments and drags her kid to all the showings. And so from seven to, you know, 13 or 14, it was, it was constantly learning about, you know, cost per square foot and like easements and, and all the stuff that, you know, you probably don't need to be thinking about when you're 10 years old. So, um, and there was always some sales to it. So that's kind of where I got interested in selling stuff, but it also showed me that my mom could make a lot of money doing this stuff. And, um, through the appreciation of assets, it was something that was really compelling to me to get into when I started having income to, uh, to, to jump into real estate. So I was in this watching for my mom at like seven, you know? Yeah. Did she, did she buy real estate too, or just sell it? Uh, she just sold it. Yeah. So she wasn't doing any investing. Um, she did, you know, buy a nice farm in Arrington, which she still owns, you know, in like 79 or 80, um, which has obviously been a great investment for her, but no, she always just stuck to, to selling, um, namely larger, larger properties where you could put cattle or horses in middle Tennessee. Yeah. And for those of those uh, people listening, not in the Nashville market, Arrington is south of Nashville and Leapers Fork, that's south of Nashville. It's beautiful, beautiful country. And man, that whole area has just exploded in the past 10 years. So when you talk about like Nashville in the 70s being a 300,000 person town to now it being the it town and those areas that you're talking about is just booming. That's, that's tremendous foresight. Well, and, and they've, they've just passed some new ordinances in, in Arrington, which is like southeast of Nashville, that follows the same ordinances in, in Leapers Fork, where I don't think you can cut anything less than five acres. Uh, so you can't just do a, a load of neighborhoods in that area. So what that does is for the, the, the folks that are super wealthy and want their privacy, they're going and building really nice properties because they don't go outside to get the newspaper and have to talk to the neighbors, you know, so the property values in Arrington are, are doing some really special things right now. And, you know, in Leapers Fork, you could have bought 50 acres in the seventies for a hundred grand. And now you can sell yeah. 50 acres for, I don't know, seven or $8 million probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's insane, man. Both of those areas, Northeast and, and, and or Southeast and Southwest of Nashville is just, bonkers. Yep. Yep. So tell us about your first deal then. When did you buy it? What part of town is it in? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> as soon as I had enough money for a down payment, you know, outside of my own house, I bought a house when I was 25, 26. But when I finally had some walking around money, I just, I knew that I, I wanted to do something real estate related and I could kind of talk about where the method and the madness came in. But, um, right when the market crashed in what, 08, 09, somewhere mm -hmm. right around there, um, there was a flood of, of foreclosed properties in middle Tennessee. And so I, the way that I looked at it on the map was, you know, you've got Nashville and then you've got Mount Juliet, Hendersonville, Bellevue, Murfreesboro and Antioch and in Antioch for me candidly has not always had the best reputation as a place that you want to move into in Nashville but by the crow fly it's eight miles 
from downtown Nashville. So I was thinking if I could acquire property in this area and the city continues to do what it's doing, naturally we're going to see some appreciation on the, on the, you know, investment and, and have a good return on it. And so, so I bought an Antioch. I bought a two bedroom condo. I still own it. You know, I still have it. Uh, and I bought it in foreclosure and I've rented it with great renters for gosh, 12 years now, something like that. And then I bought subsequently a second unit in the same development and it's been outstanding renters and the property values skyrocketed. So the bet was good. The bet was if we could stay within the city center and get, you know, a, a property that we know is going to rent well and appreciate, um, we'll do well on it. And they've been great for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit about what you're talking about, I think it's called the path of progress or the path of prosperity. A lot of people that do like land development and speculation look at where the trends are growing and then they try to buy ahead of that trend. And, for those of us not in the Nashville market, I mean, there's Nashville and then you go down the interstate 45 miles, there's a town called Murfreesboro, which is another big city and you bought right in between there. Uh, so that's kind of a, an interesting strategy there that's really worked out for you. And that's the second part of that. And something I'm a big fan of is you didn't go to the A-class neighborhoods. I think a lot of people that are looking to invest in real estate for the first time think, you know, is it a house that I would buy and want to live in? And that's not what it's about. Like, I love finding those blue collar neighborhoods where they're just hardworking people that want a safe, clean place to live. And they're always going to be a market for homes like that, where the new skyscraper downtown. I mean, if we go through COVID or if we go through 2008 again, people are moving out of those houses into property like you have. So that's great. Well, and, and there's just with, with Nashville growing the way it is now, there's a lot of out of town developers that are coming and spending a ton of money in Antioch. And so like every year, I mean, we're seeing six to 10% gains on that property. And, um, and it's just, it, it, all you got to do is look at a map. You know, it's not necessarily brain surgery. Look at the map, find out what's close and figure out which neighborhoods are affordable. You know? Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned you bought those in foreclosures. I, I don't think I knew that. Um, how did you do that process? Was it a short sale? Did you buy it in an auction? Um, no, they're both short sales. Yeah. So I uh, didn't get either one. Actually, you know what? I might've bought one of them at an auction online. I got to think about that. The first one was definitely a short sale. Second one, I might've gotten in an auction. I don't know. Like my wife and I were trying to buy as much stuff as we could at that time. And frankly, it was a long time ago, but um, no, they were just, you know, the, the, the mortgage crisis was going on and there was a lot of other things going on in the economy. And there was a lot of people that were over leveraged with debt and Nashville got as most of the country probably did just had a flood of inventory. And so um, we, we just hopped on what we thought was good and selfishly like, Dude, I was living in Antioch at the time. I kind of wanted something close to my house that, you know, if I needed to go fix a sink, I could get over there in a reasonable amount of time. A lot of investors have different strategies. Some people go out of town and do it with, you know, some property management company. I, I kind of like to have my arms on my properties. So, um, or at least close enough to put my arms on them. And that was the other reason that we decided to kind of buy closer to where we lived, you know? Yeah. I want to dig in the management piece, but first, can you tell everybody what a short sale is for those of you that might be new to that term? 
Yeah, I mean, essentially what they're trying, the banks are trying to get back what they have in the property, you know, outside of where the down payment is, what's owed on the property, um, you know, because the customer can no longer make payments on it. So, you know, if there's a property that was marketed for $180,000 and they put $20,000 down on and stopped paying their mortgage, the bank's going to want to try to get between 160 dollars and $180,000 for that to get whole on the property. Um, and so we just found ones that had a larger gap. Maybe some of it had been paid down a little bit more and uh, just tried to hop in there and address, address what we could. Yeah, and I think as we see into next year when the eviction moratoriums and the uh, uh, forbearances stop happening, that there's going to be a flood of short sales out there. So that's basically where the bank owes more money than the property is worth, and they're willing to just get it off their books so they can get some form of cash and just cut their losses. And so if real estate investors can go in there and buy property for super cheap. The downside is Somebody that's getting foreclosed on their home and a short sale probably isn't treating it very well. So you might come into some damages or some repairs. Did you have any of those when you were going through yours? That's awesome. We were good, man. I mean, both of both awesome. the properties. I mean, I think like one of them required some carpet, you know, and yeah. carpeting 600 square feet, you know, not much. Super easy. Uh, so no, but I've heard some horror stories. I mean, buyer beware for sure. But, um, you know, we were, we were able to tour the property before we, we bought it. And um, we were in a good situation where, um, you know, I think the people that were living there were on their way out peacefully. So it, it, in my situation, it worked out well. I have some other folks that, you know, just got to be careful about what you're buying for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about managing your own properties. I want to dig into that. Um, but you said, you know, you wanted to be able to have arms on the property. Do you, are you very handy? Do you know how to swing a hammer? Are you going over there and doing plumbing? Can you tell our listeners about your skill set there? I'm terrible yeah. at it. Uh, my wife was joking that uh, I put a TV on the wall the other day and that was probably the most handy thing I've done. And we've been together for 20 years, you know, so uh, to answer your question, I'm terrible at it. But when I find a good handyman or somebody that could do a lot of stuff, I pay them well and I'm very overly appreciative for everything they're doing. And, um, and so I've got three or four of those guys that can fix a dishwasher, fix a refrigerator, repair drywall, change a light bulb, like, you know, all a multitude of things. And so, um, you know, I try to stay out of my renter's properties. I feel like that's their property while they're paying me for it. So if they call, uh, you know, I let them know that Eugene, who's my guy right now, Eugene, he's a retired NES, you know, worker. Um, he, yeah. he likes to fix stuff and, what he, and he lives close to the properties. I let him know that Eugene's coming. Eugene's harmless. He fixes the stuff, tells me where to Venmo his money to him and, and we call it good. But you got to develop those great relationships if you're somebody like myself that like legitimately would probably not feel good about putting a new hinge on the door, you know. Uh, <laughs> so I try to make sure that I have a lot of people that um, know that when we call them, we pay on time, we compensate well, and uh, we're really easy to work with. And, and you, you have to offer some flexibility, like be here tomorrow at 730 for some of these guys probably doesn't work, but what days this week can you come and fix the property? Let's build it around your schedule. 
you know, they'll fit you in and they want to be paid. So it's like, you know, they'll tell you they have 45 minutes to fix the door. They'll, they'll go do it for you. So I just, yeah. I'm not good at that stuff, man. I think there's some stuff I'm really good at. I'm not really good at home improvement stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, a general philosophy in life and in real estate investing is knowing where your strengths are and then don't focus on your weaknesses. So many, t I call it the Rudy effect. So many people are out there trying to be Rudy and Rudy spent four years of his life getting to play one play in his college career. Now, it's a super inspirational story and I admire people that have that kind of dedication for what they want. But yep. at the same time, those four years, he could have spent being the next Picasso or learning how to be the next, uh, you know, software engineer or whatever. Instead, he spent a lot of time following his passion, but something that was a weakness for him. And that was just his natural size and stature. So any right. tip, so part of that is, I think when you're focusing on your strengths and complementing your weaknesses is building out a team. Um, a, a handyman and a contractor is a key, key part in any kind of real estate investors team. Any tips or tricks on how you found Eugene or some of his peers? I ask everybody all the time, who's good, you know, and Eugene, um, you know, like here, here's how we got Eugene. My neighbor that lives right down the street was having somebody come out and pressure wash his driveway and it looked great. I said, Hey man, who pressure washed your driveway? They did a good job. Man, there's this retired NES guy named Eugene that could do everything. He's great. I'm yeah. like, cool. Do you care if I call him? No. And I just picked up the phone and said, hey, man, I have my own personal property, which is seven houses up and, and some rental properties in Middle Tennessee. Um, I hear you do great work. Can I just start calling you, you know, if I need anything? And he said, as long as it's within 10 miles of my house, I'll do it. And so, unfortunately all the properties are within 10 miles. But yeah, if I see somebody doing a good job, I ask, you know, honestly, like Facebook is really good for that stuff. I think face, you know, I, I try not to be on Facebook a lot, but um, you know, they have communities of people that are working on the same stuff that we are. And you can say, Hey, like who's, who's good at cleaning out gutters, you know? And you'll get three or four answers. And if the, the same guy shows up three times, I'm probably going to call him, you know? So yep. I try to use my resources and I, and I ask questions when I see great work, you know? Yeah, great, great. So I want to shift gears on you and talk a little bit about the management portion of your real estate. I personally don't manage my own properties, but I know a lot of new investors hear the horror stories of the toilet blinking at 2 p.m. or a.m. in the morning and getting those calls of, panic but you manage your own properties um i want to first start and understand like so why did you make that decision versus hiring a property manager yeah i mean we've struggled with it um and, and for me so so the reasons that i'm i am able to manage my own properties is uh, one thing i only buy condos for me condos the yards taken care of the outside structures taken care of it's less square footage um, and there's frankly less stuff to break. So that's my personal strategy because like you said, I've, I've got a full-time job. So I, I have these properties that, you know, um, really don't require a ton of upkeep. So one of the condos that I, that I own, I've legitimately walked in the property five times in seven years, you know, 
and Eugene's been in there to fix a drawer that where the renter's kid tore the drawer off of, you know, a, a, a drawer in the kitchen. Um, but you know, that's, that's, that's all the upkeep. So if you think about five years and let's just say it's a hundred bucks a month for property management, that's 1200 bucks a year times five, that's $6,000. And so you multiply that over all the properties that I own right now. And I only have three right now, but that's $18,000 over that period of time. So for me, if I can manage it, I've got a great team. There's a little bit of square footage that doesn't require a bunch of upkeep. I don't see value in property management. I work in sales. I know how to list a property. Finding renters has never been a challenge for me. The internet gives you everything that you need to validate and background check everybody. So for me, it works well. If I had seven properties in Huntsville, Alabama, 100% property management all day long. But $18,000 is a lot of money to me. And candidly, I need to go earn probably $30,000 to take home $18,000. So I look at that as a $30,000 bonus to my W-2, which is what puts food on the table and braces on the kids' teeth and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You were, uh, you were talking about it the other day around, really, or we were talking about it around property managers, you're really kind of hiring them for two reasons. One, to take that call whenever it comes in. If it comes in at two o'clock in the afternoon, it's easy to take. If it comes in at 2 a.m. in the morning, it gets a little bit more difficult to take. And then two, uh, really coordinating all the maintenance and, and things like that. And you're really getting that book of contacts to help them fix problems. And it sounds like, you know, for you, seven years, five times in the property, a couple calls to Eugene. I mean, to your point, you're paying $18,000 for 15 calls, 20 calls over the seven years. That's, that's, a, that's a tough ROI to justify. Thousand bucks a call, right? Plus whatever it yeah. costs to fix the refrigerator. So, you know, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll put up two points. One, I tried renting my house before, and for me, it was a disaster. You know, there was just more stuff that was broken. And granted, it was a 2,800 square foot house, but there was just a lot of stuff that broke on it. And if I was to buy a house and to do it all over again, I'd probably think about property management on something like that because the fixes become a little bit more complicated. But I also treat my renters really well. And this is important because this alleviates the 2 a.m. phone call that your toilet's broken because they're like, he's a nice guy, he's fair, he runs these himself. I send them Christmas cards. When they move in, they get a bottle of wine, like, you know, flowers on Mother's Day, like treat people like they need to be treated and you 100%. don't get the hair on fire phone calls. At least that's my experience. I try to, you know, I try to treat my, my renters like I treat my customers, you know, as, as well as possible because they affect what my income is at the end of the year. You know, and so if they break a bunch of stuff and it takes off the money that I'm making on the property, then that costs me money. I think they're a little more careful with the property if, if there's, you know, they understand there's somebody good that they're sending the check to, you know. 100%. 100%. One thing that I'm trying to do is shift my language on how I uh, call my residents. 
And the difference between the word tenant and residence may seem very, very small, but instinctually in everyone's head, they know when you say resident of a property, it's like, no, they, this is their home. They treat yep. it like it's their home. And like you said, when I provide housing for someone, it is their home for a time being. So I want them to feel like it's a home. Whereas if you treat it like a tenant, it just instinctually, I think most people have like a bad conversation or thought when you hear that word. So I, that's one thing I'm trying to work on is calling my uh, residence residence as opposed to tenant. So um, talk to us a little bit about how you screen and find tenants then, because that seems to be the, the most difficult part of renting out a property, running over there, showing it, finding who's a good tenant or not. And really your money that you make in real estate investing is on having good residents in your property. So how do you, how do you handle that process? Yeah, it's, 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 probably the hardest part of the job you know you um you think about why people are moving into the property you think about how long they like to stay in the property and, and i like longer leases and and i have some folks that think i'm a maniac for saying that but at the end of the day like turning the property over every year is a pain in the butt for me i i have a full-time job and i have two children that go to soccer practice and I play in a band and I have hobbies and like, I don't want to be spending a bunch of time working on this stuff. So, you know, I look at people that want to have a, a, a long-term lease. I try to understand why they're moving, you know, and whether I think that's a valid reason to move. Um, and, and then I, I really pay attention to the data, you know, like you get now with these screening tests, you can see, you know, how much money, you know, or in the bank accounts and, and, you know, what money they owe and it helps you make a decision. So I look at a pool of renters and I go, who wants the longest lease? Why are they moving? Does the data support the fact that we're going to be able to wrap our arms around each other? And then it's my job to sell them on moving into the property and taking good care of it, you know, but um, and I'll go over the data with them. Like we just rented a property to a gentleman and, you know, it looked like he liked to drive his car pretty fast. And I was like, you know, you should probably not do that uh, quite as often. Yeah. You know, we need to keep you around here. But, um, you know, it's for the safety of the tenants that live around the, the property as well. So I'm very thorough. I try to rent to good people. At one point in my life, I didn't have A plus credit. You know, uh, and so I could sympathize with people that don't have A plus credit. And so I try to rent to humans rather than credit scores. But I am very critical of can they make the rent? It, you know, is, is if they lose their job, can can the wife and the husband support the income? If I don't think they can, let's have a conversation about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think the key there is for new investors to make sure you have a set of criteria, um, especially in states like Illinois and California and New York, where tenant um, laws and, and landlord laws are, are a lot stricter. You want to make sure that you can definitively say, no, this is this is nothing to do with the person. It's because our 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 data says that they need to have this, this, and this, and they don't. So, um, right. but I love your statement there around you're renting the humans, and you need to make sure that. Uh, you treat them that way as well. 100%. So I know um, through our conversations that you actually have paid off all of your mortgages. Um, yeah. I think there's a big debate out there in society as a whole with cheap money. Do you pay off your mortgage? Do you not pay off your mortgage? And 
even though that might not be the most maximal effect, efficient way to treat your money. Can you talk a little bit about like that, why you made that decision and how that's working for you? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a single income family. Uh, my wife worked for many years, but she stays at home and, and runs our girls around now. And so, you know, when I think about debt and I think about, you know, um, how, you know, I want to service that debt. The most important thing for me is to limit all of my, you know, liabilities every month. And so for me, um, I, I, I loosely, I'd say about 70% follow Dave Ramsey's, you know, uh, thought processes. I don't agree with everything that Dave does, but I will say that I am where I am financially right now because when I was 22 years old, I've followed a lot about what Dave Ramsey's doing. And a lot of it is this debt snowball stuff. So it is, you know, pay off your smallest note first and then move on to this. I never had credit card debt. Uh, I played soccer in college. I didn't have any student loan debt. I got to enter the world in a clean slate, which is very fortunate. So when I bought my first property, um, I just would take my extra income and start trying to pay that off. And then I still had a note on my first property when I bought my second one. And so I took the rental income from both of them and I started just attacking the, the first property and then it paid for itself. And then, you know, the, you know, I, I, then I was making $1,100 a month on the property and I, I never pay myself on this stuff, Matt. Like for as long as I've owned these properties, I don't get my rent statement at the end of the month and then go buy plane tickets to go to Cabo. I take all the money and then I pay down whatever the next debt is. And so now there's $850,000 of paid for real estate. And I know I say that because if I lost my job tomorrow and all my renters moved out, you know, I've got, you know, uh, on paper, it would have been about three or $4,000 worth of mortgage payments on top of all the other stuff that I have to pay for, um, for my family. I just felt more comfortable getting it done. So all I'm paying for is insurance and taxes um, and HOA dues and stuff like that. It makes me sleep better at night, but I have friends that are becoming fabulously wealthy in Memphis, leveraging their own debt to go buy more properties and then using that money to go leverage debt and buy more properties. And they've got millions of more properties than I own but that makes me feel a little uneasy and that's not why I bought the properties in the first place, you know? So oh, it's yeah. only my strategy, but you know, and, and I'll finish with this. Now that all the rental properties are paid for, I'm taking that money and paying off my mortgage. So, you know, the 5,000 bucks a month I make in rental income all goes straight to the principal of, of my own property. And yeah. then that's done. You know, I'll, I guess maybe I'll go buy another rental property. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Well, there's two key principles I want to pull out from that. And the first is that all uh, personal finance is personal. And yes. I think there's ways through numbers and math for one argument to make sense. And then there's ways for one logic to take over for another argument that makes sense. So I think all personal finance is personal and that you should be super clear on what your goal is and not just 
say, hey, I'm going to pay off this debt and then six months later say, well, I'm going to change my strategy and do this. No, 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 no. Get super clear on what you're trying to do and then go forward with the strategy. Um, so, and then the second piece of that is that you mentioned you don't pay yourself a dollar. I'm the same way. And yeah. I know we've had this conversation and I've had a lot of conversations with my friends around, look, if you go buy rental property specifically, you need to understand that you're not going to see that money for the next 10 years. You just, just assume it, right? And if you do, then great. But if you, if you need it in, in a time of crunch, you've got it. But just assume that you're not going to see it. I have a fundamental belief that I don't know if TikTok or Oracle or Facebook or shoot, even GE and Volkswagen are going to be around in 20 years. I do know that a piece of rental property and sticks and nails and pieces of wood erected in a house are going to have value. They're never going to go to zero because people will always need a place to live. So that's why I try to get people in the mindset of when you buy a real, real estate property, just assume you're never going to see that money again. So I love that concept of not paying yourself from that, that money. Yeah. I mean, we, we use these properties originally as college savings vehicles for my kids, you know? Um, and so the way that we looked at it is you could, and we still have the college savings plans for both the girls, but I have two daughters. And the, the problem with the college savings plans is that if you have one kid that gets a softball or a soccer scholarship, you're limited on what you could use that money for. Conversely, if my other daughter becomes a rock and roll singer and doesn't go to college, then you've got this pool of money that you still have to figure out with it. You know, you get taxed heavily if you don't use it for the intended resources. So what we thought was, well, let's go buy two condos and we bought them in the same neighborhood. So both the girls are, are equal. And then, you know, we've taken some of the money that we would have put in the college fund and we paid the mortgage down. They're all paid for now. But in 10 years, you know, when the kids go to school, if one of them has a baseball scholarship or excuse me, softball, maybe baseball. Um, if one of them has a scholarship, they can move into the house. You know, they can live there. Or we could sell it if one of them needs to go become a brain surgeon at Harvard and have $250,000 that we could just pay for graduate school and all that. And so we, and in the meantime, we're making money off of it and, and paying down our own mortgage to make things more comfortable for us financially. So, um, you know, I think that real estate as a college savings vehicle is something that needs to be socialized more candidly uh, because I think that there's a lot of things that you could do with the property if your kids don't qualify for the college savings plans that allows them to be tax exempt on that stuff. 100% and let's just be honest like not everybody's going to go to college in the future. Right. I, right. I, I think college has been a little bit over inflated and over emphasized in our society to where you know, if you're a great software developer, like we've seen in the past, then maybe you don't need to go to college and you've at least given your child a, a place to live that's paid for. And, and they're getting to learn the business skills of how do you manage a real estate property, seeing expenses go out and income come in and things like that. So I 100% agree with that. Well, and think about if you would have gotten out of college and your parents gave you a property and you had no student loan debt, yeah, no credit card debt, and paid for real estate. Like yep. then all you're doing is creating wealth. Like day one, you're creating wealth instead of saving up for a down payment, doing this and doing that. 
So, you know, I, part of my goal in all of this is to have my children be able to just start their lives when they're 23 or 24 and they get out of college instead of trying to figure out how to pay for their student loan debt or, you know, so, you know, I I just feel like real estate is a great vehicle for that. And it gives you a lot of flexibility on what you could do with the asset, you know, if there's no college, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. So the last kind of topic I want to cover with you is that I know at one point you had your real estate license and, a lot of new investors that I talk to are asking questions like, do I need a real estate license? Do I need an LLC? Do, do, is there a benefit to having a real estate license? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, why did you decide to get a real estate license? Kind of what that process looked like and then close us out with, do you still have that today? Are you an active real estate agent? Yeah. And those sorts of things. Yeah, so because my mom uh, was in real estate and she's a broker, you know, I kind of feel like if your mom's a broker, you should probably have your real estate license. You know, you study for it for a month, you take a test, you pay some dues. And, and, and honestly, uh, there was a point in my life where I was kind of thinking like, maybe I'll go do real estate. Like I probably watched too much Bravo or something and just figured I could go do it. Right. Um, and so I, I did deals for myself and I did deals for my friends uh, and frankly, it was a, a pretty lucrative side hustle. You know, my buddies are buying houses in Brentwood. That's a pretty good commission on the sale of that stuff. And, you know, it allowed me to do things like get into like few properties quickly and save money on, you know, closing costs and some things like that. So I had my real estate license for six to seven years and honestly, I looked at it and, and first of all, I didn't enjoy it. So like I, when I was buying and selling real estate myself and for my friends, I, I didn't love it, you know, honestly. Um, and, and I looked at it and I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to buy anything anytime soon. I am trying to buy something next to the soccer stadium right now in Nashville, but I was like, you know, I'm just not going to go buy 10 rental properties. And I was spending, you know, maybe 1500 bucks a year keeping my license up. So for me, I was like, I'll just let it lapse. And if I decide I want to hop back into it, I could just pay my outstanding dues, take a retest and and call it good. So uh, I learned a lot from it. And more importantly, I learned a lot about the laws around real estate and allowed me to be a little bit more strategic around you know, how to look at a property and, and some of the, the pitfalls with it. But, you know, if your mom's a broker, you should just go get your license. You know, it's like, yeah. why wouldn't you, you know? So not a necessity, but you're glad you did it because of the learning. hundred percent. I love real estate. Like I love the idea of real estate. I love the idea of buying something that, you know, creates more value as the longer that you own it. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad I learned more about it. I just didn't like the practice of trading real estate for a living, you know? And so, yeah. you know, I, I thought about quitting my job one, at, at one point and going and selling real estate. And, and I'm really glad that I put my toes in the pond first because I, I, it's just something that I didn't end up really enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been super interesting. I've learned a lot. I had no idea that you bought your first property through a short sale. That's super interesting. And I want to learn more actually about that because I think that's a big trend that we're going to see in 2021 and 2022. 
for everybody out there that said, boy, everybody was lucky who could buy real estate in 2008 to 2012. Unfortunately, I think, or fortunately and unfortunately, we're about to experience something pretty similar. So um, that's, that's interesting to me. I'd love to learn. Um, I'd like to shift into kind of like our last segment here. We, we ask each guest uh, just a couple different questions, just to um, the lightning uh, round. extract our last bit of knowledge here. The lightning round. We're going to have to call it something. So sure. um, the, the first one is, what's your favorite book? Oh, gosh. Probably Lead, Sell, or Get Out of the Way. Who's that written by? I don't think I've heard that one. I am not sure who wrote it. Um, I've read it probably two or three times. Um, lead seller, get out of the way is number one. I'm a homer for like a rock star biography as well. So like Steve Gorman's written a great one from the Black Crows. Anthony Kiedis has a great one, but like the self-help stuff, lead seller, get out of the way for sure. That's awesome. Um, I'm a big fan of consistent habits every day make you a better human. What's something that you do every single day? Um, I try to plan my day every single day and I put everything on the calendar every single day. So I go on a walk every morning. My neighbors probably think I'm an idiot, but every morning I walk around in a circle for like four miles. And I, and I look at my calendar and I think of all the things that I want to accomplish that day. And I just jam it into Outlook, you know, and if it's, I think if today's a good day to go run five miles, I'll go find an hour and put a five mile run in. If it's, I need to follow up with these three customers because I'm not sure where we left that proposal, I'll put it on my calendar. So if you look at my Outlook calendar at any time, I mean, it's jammed from take girls to school at 7.30 all the way to go out to dinner with my brother at 6.30. And that's an everyday thing, you know, every day. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about that. Do you know who Jesse Eisner is? Uh-uh. He's the owner of the Hawks, and he has this um, – he's fantastic to listen to. I mean, everything from writing a rap song for the New York Knicks to selling a company to Warren Buffett to owning the Hawks today. He's just a super fascinating person to uh, listen to and understand. But he, he has this thing where he plans out his entire year and puts key dates on the calendar and things like that. So I, I love that practice. Does he have a book? Um, I don't know if he has a book, but you can definitely go online and see. He's got a pretty big uh, online presence. And yeah. for as impressive as Jesse is, his wife is more impressive than him. And, and I feel bad saying that because I, I think the world of him, he's an endurance runner too. Um, oh, but cool. his wife was the founder of Spanx. So the youngest female self-made billionaire of all time. Yeah, she was on a Shark Tank a couple times too, I think. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's cool. Um, what's, the what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Every day is your resume. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? Ooh. Um, God, probably, you know, probably aside from my kids and my wife who I adore, uh, that's a good question. Uh, probably like finishing college. So I, I went to college and, you know, uh, I hated it. Like, like I, I went up to West Virginia to go get a get an education because it was paid for. 
Um, and I, and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy playing college soccer. I didn't enjoy being in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia. And I met my wife and it became to get a little easier, but I hated playing college soccer, every bit of it. And I can remember going to, I called my mom, like after the first semester was over and I was like, all right, I'm out of here. Like, this was cool, but I'm, I'm going to go to UT and see how much beer I can drink or whatever. And uh, she was like, cool, well, you're, you're paying for all of it and you aren't a quitter. So I'd recommend you change your mind. Uh, Cause I'm not paying for you to go drink beer with your buddies. And so I was like, sugar, I've got three more years of this stuff. And I played soccer for another three years and graduated on time and, and, and got out of there. But that was probably my biggest accomplishment because I was so ready to leave in the middle of November of 1999 mm -hmm. after being there for four months. So it's a good question. You, you, the lightning round's a good one today, man. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, maybe we'll cut this part, but I, I put that up there as one of mine, too, is because I grew up dyslexic in a really small, poor town yeah. where uh, I graduated with 156 people. And the reason why I know that is because I was 76 in the class, right in the middle, and my brother was number one in the class. And yeah. uh, so, you know, growing up in that kind of environment, I think 10 out of that 156 went to college and, and graduated, and I was one of them. And That's awesome. it wasn't easy. It certainly wasn't easy. So I, I can respect that. Yeah. Um, last question is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? Living or dead? Huh? L living, living or dead? Or, uh, living uh, or dead. Uh, dude, Steve yeah. Gleason. Steve Gleason, seven days a week. Tell, tell everybody who Steve Gleason is. I, I respect that one, too. God, Steve's just my guy, man. I mean, um, so Steve Gleason, um, he, he was – he. He was an NFL football player. He played for the New Orleans Saints. Um, and, you know, he's the guy that blocked the punt. So, like, after Katrina, I think they were playing the Falcons or somebody like that. And Steve broke through, blocked the punt, and it was the, it was the uh, symbol of the rebirth of, of New Orleans. And outside of the Superdome, they've actually got the, the statue of Steve blocking the punt. And then he, uh, he got sick with ALS, you know, and, and so now he, he's in a wheelchair and he can't speak and, and everything's very manual with caretakers, but he continues to, to help people daily. And he's, he's been a big advocate for, um, you know, the ALS community and, and he, his fundraiser helps give people technology so that they can communicate once they have ALS. And so, like, that's all awesome. Like, what Steve does is amazing. But it, it, it also teaches you not to be a bitch, you know? I mean, you're thinking about this guy who can't walk and he can't speak, and the easiest thing would be for him to just feel sorry for himself and not do anything. And every day he gets up and he tries to make a difference. And so that's just – You know, I keep I keep this on my desk every day. You know, the the no white flags, Steve Steve Gleason, and so like every day where I'm like, let's let's hang it up early, or let's let's maybe not put in a whole day's work. I look at the Gleason stuff and go, if you know, if Steve Gleason can do it today, I should be able to do it too. So another yeah. good question, man. 
Well, I love that answer too. And, and just all the uh, emotion behind your answer, because I think we've talked about it. My sister grew up with Down syndrome. And when you grow up in that type of environment, you start looking around and I'm not saying life's not hard. And there's definitely some challenges that I go through personally, emotionally and mentally and all that kind of stuff. But then yep. I'm reminded of her and, and she passed away two years ago at, at my parents' house, which is just so tragic in the middle of the night. And I'm just reminded like, I have my struggles, but some people didn't even get the option to have the struggles. So right. what are you complaining about? That's so right. I love that answer. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Reed, this has been super impactful for me. Good friend, good mentor, good coach. I'm so ha happy that we uh, got a chance to talk in 2016. You got me on this whole real estate journey. I'm only beginning and uh, I'm interested to see where it goes, but you were the start of that. So I'm very appreciative of that and the time you provided everybody today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This is fun. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.